Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We interview Pam Bixby, who is the Vice President of Voter Services for the League of Women Voters in the Austin area. And Pam was a great guest, shared so much with us about what voting is actually like in Texas, how hard it is just to register to vote, how hard it is to then vote. And we just talked about the state of voting in Texas. I think, which was really informative for this election series. So we sort of understand the barriers just to get to the ballot box. But Nicole, what were some of your takeaways from our conversation? Well, per usual, right? I was so impressed with the organization and so amazed that these people do this work for free. (laughs) Another example of people who believe in what they're doing and so are willing to give of their time and energy for no compensation. I also would want to encourage everyone to check out the League of Women Voters because they have a voter's guide that they put together that is completely nonpartisan that lets candidates speak for themselves. And so you can make informed decisions about who you want to vote for. But again, they're nonpartisan, so they ask all candidates for their answers to questions that are relevant for any particular election. Yeah, they have a lot of fabulous resources when you're getting ready to go vote. If you're like, I don't know anything, what should I do? A lot of our previous guests would defer to the League of Women Voters. So when you're getting ready to vote, which is going to be November 8th, so mark your calendar, check out vote411.org. Look at their information. They're a really great resource. And listen to Pam and all of her great wisdom. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. Today, we are speaking with Pam Bixby, who works with the League of Women Voters. Actually, Pam, do you volunteer with the League? Is that right? Yes, we're 100% volunteer until we just hired a League manager a couple months ago, but the rest of us, the board is all volunteer. Okay. And tell us your position again. I am vice president of voter service, which covers a couple of big areas, including our voters guide, our first vote, high school voter registration program, our candidate forums, and our register and vote activities. That's great. Well, thank you for highlighting that you're all volunteers. I think it's really important that we know where people come from when they're doing this kind of work. In our previous episode, we've talked to elected officials and some of them have said that they are basically unpaid elected volunteers or very minimally paid. And I think it's important for people to know why you do this and that you do it out of your free time and because of your passion. Right, right. Great. Well, we would love to start off by learning just a little bit about your story, how you came to Texas, just what it was like for you growing up. Well, I'm actually not from Texas. I'm from the Northeast, from a small town in Pennsylvania. I grew up in a town of about 3,000 folks, and I grew up on a farm. And I did my college in Pennsylvania, my graduate school in Washington, D.C., ended up traveling the world as a military spouse. And we came to Texas when my spouse got out of the military, and we just were looking for the best place to live. And we traveled around the country and came through Austin and loved it and put down roots about 30 years ago. So oh, I've been yeah. here a while. <laughs> yeah. Which branch of government? Well, ex-spouse now was in the U.S. Navy. 
Okay. Yeah. My so dad was my yeah. husband. Yeah. 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 <laughs> my dad was in the Air Force. My sister's in the Air Force. So similarly, we moved around a lot growing up and yeah. came back to Texas <laughs> later in life. My parents are in San Antonio, though. There's a lot of military bases there. There's a lot there. of military there. Yes. Yeah. And luckily, Austin's not that far. Austin speaks to me. So that's why I'm here. And it sounds like <laughs> y'all as well. Yeah. So I'm curious, when you were growing up, was your family politically involved? Do you have like any memories that come to the surface around election time? No, actually, I do not remember ever speaking about politics with my parents. And I remember being in college and not even really understanding the difference between a Democrat and a Republican. And my awakening, I think, came when I was in college and I just started volunteering for things that I really cared about. And I realized I cared about the environmental movement. And I remember marching in D.C. for Earth Day and things like that. And so my leanings just kind of naturally occurred. And then I realized kind of what I believed in after that. And now I do talk to my father about politics a lot. He's still in rural Pennsylvania. And so we actually do have a lot of conversations now. Is he receptive? I'm curious what those conversations are like. So this is my personal side. The League of Women Voters is completely nonpartisan. We do not discuss politics or candidates or anything. My father is lives in rural Pennsylvania. He's been a gun owner his entire life. He's been a lifetime member of the NRA. And we actually, most of our conversations, to be honest, revolve around gun rights. One time I was there for an extended period of time a couple of years ago. Every single day we talked about firearms in the United States. And he brought his evidence. And I remember bringing my evidence. And we had these heated, art, not heated, but just sharing ideas back and forth. And, and in the end, I said, Dad, what can we agree on? What can our two sides agree on? And we actually came up with three things that we could agree on. One of them was enforce the laws that already exist, that are on the books, because many of them aren't. Tighten up the connections among the databases. That's that fix nicks kind of theme. And what was the third one? There was a third one. I forget it was. And I said, "Okay, well, then we agree on these three things. Yay, we won. So he's receptive to some things. (laughs) It sounds like that's the model we all we would love to see all of government adopt. Right. Is like, yes, two opposing sides, but that are willing to listen to each other and find the common ground, because obviously it is possible. (laughs) And it's starting. It is possible. Sometimes we're fed the narrative that it's not possible, but it is. So I love that. Right, exactly. And I think just remembering we're all in this boat together, we have to get along somewhat because we're not going anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, well, let's transition a little bit into the League of Women Voters. So we thought it would be great to speak with you because in our education series, we had a lot of our guests bring up the League of Women Voters kind of organically. We would ask them, especially people who are running for office, when someone's getting ready to go vote and go to the ballot box, how do you recommend that those voters educate themselves? And they were like, the League of Women Voters, the League of Women Voters. So we're like, oh, we have to talk to you because this is our election series and so much of your work is around that mission. But can you specifically tell us what is the mission of the League? Sure. As I said before, we're a nonpartisan activist grassroots organization, and our goal is to protect and expand voting rights in the United States, because we believe that voters are the key to democracy. So that is essentially, so everything that we do is around those things, protecting and expanding voting rights. We provide lots of education because we believe voters shouldn't go to the polls without knowing what they're voting for. So that's where our education component comes in. Love it. (laughs) Yes, I mean, we need that for sure. Can you tell us about why the League was created and what that origin story looked like? Sure. So 
It was over 100 years ago, when, about the time that the 19th Amendment was being ratified. It passed in Congress, and then it had to be ratified by the states. And the women suffragists at the time realized that the battle then kind of went to the states because that amendment needed to be ratified. And so state leagues started popping up. They realized it wasn't just a national thing to fight for. So state leagues started popping up around 100 years ago, and the Texas League is 101 years old now. And so the structure is there's a national league in Washington that kind of covers national issues and advocacy. And then every state has a league at the state level. And then local jurisdictions have leagues. And that's the one I'm on the board of the Austin area League of Women Voters. So there's Texas. I forget how many leagues we have in Texas, something in the 50s, I think. And then we work with the state league on some legislative issues. And how did you get involved with the League of Women Voters? Oh, that story is sorted. So when about the time my daughter went to college for the first time, which was she graduated high school in 2015. So she wanted to vote in the 2016 election. And I said, oh, no problem. I know there's a thing such as absentee voting. And so I go, I'll help you get that taken care of. And in that process, I realized like I went to the Secretary of State's website, I downloaded the application, I had it sitting on my desk for a couple of months, because I knew there was some time frame that she had to fill out this application. When I went back a couple months later, a new law had gone into it that added some information on there. And I remember reading this and just being completely infuriated. And the information on that application said, you should mail it in, or you can scan it and email it in, which I thought, awesome for a college student, right? They don't even know what a post office is, right? They've never seen a stamp. Well, then there was a little line that said, if emailing this form, you must also mail it in within four business days. And I just incredulous. Then what's the convenience of emailing? Exactly. And it had been input. It had been in the 2015, I believe, legislative session, it had been decided upon, and then it made it into the language of that application. And I just was infuriated. And so I started looking around for ways that I could make an impact on that. And so I started my first role in the league was helping with high school voter registration in our first vote program, because I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm an educated adult and I had no idea and I didn't know how difficult this was and what our kids who are going off to college, they're not going to know. So that was how I got involved years ago. And I have to ask a question too. So when you discovered that change, was that by chance that you discovered that? Completely by chance. Yeah. Yeah, completely by chance. And I'm someone who reads the paper and pays attention and listens to the radio, national public, KUT, whatever, like public kind of service things. And I did not know. I did not know. So if I'm someone who's kind of on top of it and I had no idea, and now, as we'll get into later, there's even more hurdles to jump through that are really impossible for just the average voter to step through on their own. And that's why in the league exists to kind of demist, clarify all those things and kind of help smooth out a process that's been made more difficult, unfortunately. And I also am going to jump in again to say, I know that this might be obvious to many people, but I really want to put it out there, right? That this is a nonpartisan discussion we are having, 100% right? This is nonpartisan. about everyone having an opportunity to vote. Exactly. <laughs> no and voter suppression, I mean, and while voter, and we'll get into voter suppression later, but while voter suppression tactics are often meant to disenfranchise a certain group, but they affect everybody. I mean, they completely affect everybody. And as we'll go through some of the things, I can give you just some examples to think about how it might affect different types of voters in Texas. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the folks who we've talked to who are advocates for a particular issue, 
I feel like it's a similar story where they were just going about their lives and then they encountered this obstacle that was very frustrating to them because it felt like it should have been easier. And that's sort of what ignited their journey to try to change. Activism, right. Yeah, it's great. I love it. <laughs> so can we talk about the voter's guide and how that is developed to help folks when they go vote? Sure. We have an amazing director of our voter's guide program. Her name's Gretchen Otto. She's been doing it for years and she has a whole team under her. And the way it works is We have a questions committee and we try to make that as broad as possible. Now, we're working in central Texas, so I mean, in the Austin area. So it tends to be Travis. We have some people from Williamson, some people from Hayes County. We reach out to groups every cycle to see, do you want to participate in our questions committee? We get together. We look at the questions from the last couple of times. We think about what other issues have bubbled up, what's in front of the voters now, what might people want to know, and we get input on the questions. Because of the length of it, we can only ask about four questions in the guide. We can add another question or two on the online version, which is Vote 411, which has even more information, and that's a nationwide resource. We can talk about that later. So we don't tend to get wildly different questions every cycle because issues take a long time to kind of bubble through the system. But we definitely try to hit when COVID was happening. We had public health kind of question in there when there were education bonds and then each election has different questions. So your mayor is going to get different questions from your county commissioners, from those people. And so we tailor the questions to the office and we develop those questions. They are non-leading. They are open-ended so that they can't say yes or no. And then there's a whole system and deadlines and whatever where we have to find all the candidates, which we were actually just doing now because the filing deadline was August 25th. So I keep thinking, oh, my God, the election's right around the corner. But we didn't even know all the local candidates until August 25th in Travis County anyway. So then we reach out, we get their emails, all the questions go to those folks. They're given the directions on how to upload those questions through our Vote 411 system. They have a deadline, they get reminders, et cetera. Then once the deadline hits, then the work goes to design the guide because we do a print guide for big elections twice a year. And then we do just do vote for one on the electronic version on the smaller elections. And we will include the races for every candidate in races in which there is a league member. If we have three league members in some tiny little hamlet that's kind of on the edge fringe of our service area, we will include those races. So we try to get information. And uh, the other important thing about the voter's guide is that we do not edit in any way, except for length. I mean, they have a length, they have word limits, whatever. We don't edit their responses. So if they send in something that's full of grammatical errors or unless they've said something, unless they've gone awry of our rules, which is don't say anything bad about another candidate, don't use foul language, whatever, you get what you get. You see what the idea is that these are unfiltered responses. We're not cleaning them up. We're not making them seem like someone who they're not. And that's what's printed. And so I think that's why people really understand that it's a credible source of information and we're not editing it. It's, it's right out of the horse's mouth, so to speak. Right. So 411.com or .org? .org. I think, though, if you put .com, you'd end up there. But vote411.org. It's not only our league, but all the leagues across the country upload their information. So that's available to anyone in the country. You put your address in there. It comes up and then up comes your ballot. Whatever your local, there might be state constitutional amendments on there. There might be local issues, bond elections, whatever. So what's for your ballot will come up. You can compare candidates. You can look at pro and con of on issues. 
And then you can make your selections and print it out and bring it into the polling location. And if people wanted the paper version, how would they get that? The paper version, we print, oh my gosh, I think 40,000. And in fact, one thing I'm really proud of is we are now producing it in four languages, English, Spanish, Vietnamese, and Chinese. The Vietnamese and Chinese, we don't physically print, but we have the PDFs on our website for download. The Spanish and English, we print. It will be in the Austin Chronicle about right around when early voting starts, whatever issue that is, it'll be inserted into the Austin Chronicle, which is a great partner of ours. We will print about 40,000. We have a huge distribution network. We bring them to libraries, community care clinics, really anyone who asks. We have a huge list and a whole bunch of volunteers go to the warehouse, pick them up and spread them out all over town. So they'll be in public offices, government offices, public places, that sort of thing. I just wanted our listeners to know in case they like things in the paper version. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times you do like them. And the PDFs will be on our website, which is lwvaustin.org. So the PDFs for download are always there. Also, if someone has the, the willingness to print it out or if they just want to print out their pages, because like I said, it's every race for all of the Austin area. So it's a yeah. thick publication. Okay, good. Yeah, We'll make sure that we have links in the episode description. So perfect. If you're driving somebody, don't worry. Yeah. You can uh, stop when you can and we'll have links there. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about the state of voting in Texas. As you were saying earlier, a lot of the league work is very specific geographically. So how does Texas compare to the rest of the nation when it comes to just voter turnout? You know what? I knew you were going to ask that question. So I looked it up just to be sure I had the right numbers. So compared to the rest of the country, I don't have that necessarily. But what I do know is that in Texas, 67% of the registered voters participated in our 2020 presidential election. And as you know, probably presidential elections get the biggest turnout. So 67% of our registered voters, that was about 17 million people in Texas voted, but that was only 52% of the voting age population. So I think you said somewhere in your information that we don't have, it's not a red or blue problem, it's a non-voting problem. So when 52% of the voting age population is voting, that's almost 48% of people who could vote who aren't participating. So why aren't those people voting? Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I think about this all the time because... This is just my opinion because I haven't read a definitive study on it or anything. I think it's a combination of factors. One of them, I think, is information overload and misinformation. There's so much stuff coming at you all the time, and it's hard to know what's credible, what's right. I think it also, there are some effects of voter suppression, one of the tactic of which is gerrymandering. So if you kind of know, well, my vote's not going to matter anyway because the politicians have picked their voters instead of the opposite, then you kind of, if you run into one obstacle, you're like, well, it doesn't matter anyway, so I'm not going to vote. So you have some discouragement that's kind of built into the system. You have some just apathy due to misinformation and information flooding. And we also have a lack of civics education. So I don't think people even, young people coming into the system often don't even really understand what their role is in a democracy. And so those three things together, I think, are kind of the core of the problem. Well, this is a great moment to be grateful for the League of Women Voters. (laughs) Once again, reminding everybody (laughs) that it is nonpartisan. It is nonpartisan. What a great service to, I mean, your voter's guide is incredible is that it gives people such a great touch point for finding out the basics of who they're voting for and what their positions are on issues. 
And once again, right, that is devoid of any sort of partisanship. That is just about who fits what you right. find important. And what I tell as we're, we educate young voters, you know, I mentioned our first high school voter education program. When I'm talking to students and I say, I know it's overwhelming. There's no possible way you can know everything about what to know about this race. But I said, think about what's important to you. Before you even do any research, just think about what's important to you. What do you care about? Pick one or two issues and then go on the candidate websites and see what they're saying about that. See what their position is on that. And then go with the person who most aligns with what you really care about. And I think that's a good way to do it instead of the other way around where you go to the party and then see what they're doing or just vote straight party, which is probably never a great idea. But start with your own values and your own set of things that you care about. Absolutely. I think I'm the sort of person where I used to vote in general elections regularly, then got more involved, started voting in primary elections, then got so involved that I actually decided to run for office. But I didn't realize how important primary elections are and how that's really where you decide who is going to. Because you talk about, yeah, you talk about 60 percent, 7 percent of registered voters voted in the presidential election. You know how much it is in the primary? It's about 12 percent. And you know how much in the like a local election? It's about 8 percent of people. So that's a very small portion of the population deciding on huge issues that affect everybody's quality of life and what happens in their city, in their backyard. So yeah, a very small percentage of people are making decisions that most affect us day to day. Right. And it's funny because it feels like the noise is kind of flipped. Like we hear more about the national elections, which don't really impact you as much, but it's the local ones that do. And yet that is harder to figure out. I feel it. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's very unfortunate, but that's the where we are. Yeah. Well, we're glad that y'all hone in on all these races so that when people perhaps are ready to go vote for the next and the next and the next election, they can come in prepared and know a little bit more about who they're actually voting for. And the fact that you just lay out the information and it's not an endorsement process. It's not a party process. It's this is the best way to assess for you who you think would be a good representative for you. Exactly. You know what, what I need think? more of? We might want to do. <laughs> I always come in, Pam, as the novice, the relatively new to all of this in this world. This might be actually a good moment to not assume that when we talk about primary races that people understand what that means. So what if we back up just a teeny bit and talk about primaries? Sure. So a primary, for those who are wondering, is where those are run by the parties. So the Democratic Party will hold a primary race, and those are candidates who are all running for the same job, essentially, within that party. So just we had our primaries back in March. And through that situation, Beto O'Rourke is now like, for instance, the Texas governor's race. Beto O'Rourke won the primary. So he is now the Democratic nominee to challenge our current Republican candidate, who is our sitting governor, Abbott. And so for every race, there will be primaries in each party. And then the winners of those will go on to be on the ballot in November. And then a local election usually about things like propositions, bond, bond elections, that sort of thing. And even fewer people come out for those. And I'll tell you what, it is really hard to get information about local ballot initiatives until very, very close to an election, which again is why I think 
people kind of like wake up a week before the election and go, oh my gosh, I'm just hearing about this for the first time. And that's, well, probably because that's the first time really general information has been put out in the public about it. Those things are, to me, they feel like way behind the information curve. Like people just aren't, aren't aware of those very local things until very close to an election. Agree. Just a quick little side note in case somebody doesn't know this too, but if you win, not if, how about when, when you vote in a primary election, you have to vote in one party or the other. You don't vote in both. So if you're going to vote for the Democratic side in that primary, then that's the side you've sort of chosen for that particular election. Correct. But then when it comes to November in the general like say you voted in a Democratic primary, that does not behoove you to vote for a Democrat in the general election. You can decide your party at the primary level and then whoever you want in the general. Such a good point. Yeah. So let's go back to that 48% of folks who are not voting but could vote. What are some of those obstacles that they come up against? Why is it difficult to register, even just to register to vote in Texas? Oh, my gosh. Do we have time? (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Texas is one of the most difficult states to vote in. I mean, there were a lot of restrictions even before SB1, which we'll talk about also. But for one thing, and I don't know that this is that much different from other states, but we must have a wet signature on a form in order to register to vote. So in other words, that's why there's no online voting, because you have to physically, with a pen, a blue or black pen, sign your name on a form. So there's that. The forms come, either people have to go to the tax office to get a form, or they have to go to a library, or they go to a government building that happens to have them, or they see what is called a volunteer deputy registrar, which most of the people in the League of Women Voters are volunteer deputy registrars. We have done some training and we know how to get people registered and we will go to movie theaters and grocery stores and music events and anything you can think of, any farmer's markets, any place where there's a public gathering, you'll see volunteers out with clipboards asking if you've been registered. So the one point of the most... I guess the most central way to do it would be to go physically to the tax office, get a form, fill it out, leave it there. But then there's all these other kind of ways in which volunteers help to get people registered. So there's also something that Texas did not participate in, fought for many, many years called, and you might have heard, the motor voter law, which I forget what year it was passed. But what was supposed to happen is when you got your driver's license in any state, you were supposed to be offered voter registration. Many states implemented it as soon as it was became law. Texas fought it. So for many years, if you just moved to Texas, you were not given the opportunity to update your registration and get registered to vote in Texas. That is now not the case. Texas lost that deal a couple of years ago. So now it should be when you go to renew your driver's license or when you first move into the state, you'll be asked if you'd like to also register to vote. So that roadblock at least has been eliminated. Because can we point out, I just want to, like, in case this feels a little unclear, maybe, or like murky, like why that's a problem. What I'm hearing then is, so then you, let's say you move to Texas and you're not given that offer, then if that's not kind of front of mind for you, then all of a sudden it becomes election time and you realize you're not registered. And then you've got to try to figure out the mechanisms for how to Very get true. And in Texas... You have to register at least 30 days ahead of an election. So say you miss that opportunity, say you're someone who's got kids and a job and you just moved. And as you said, voting wasn't on top of mind and you weren't offered it automatically when you first moved into the state. 
then if you didn't catch it 30 days ahead of an election, well, then you've missed that election cycle and you have to wait till the next election. Hmm. So it sounds like there's a lot of friction involved in trying to just register to vote in Texas, not even we're not going to talk about voting yet. What is the argument for putting those obstacles in place? Because to me, it sounds like the easier we make it, the better it is for Texans. You are so logical. Yes. <laughs> to be honest, I honestly do not understand the arguments because these affect all voters. I mean, it affects Republicans and Democrats and independent. It affects all voters. So I don't know the original intent to make it more as difficult as possible. I mean, the answer, okay, well, the easy answer or the legislatures who put in place obstacles to voting will say it's to combat voter fraud. However, I did some research on this. Voter fraud is exceedingly rare. And I got numbers from a very conservative website. In 2020, there were 159 million voters, more than 159 million voters. Guess how many cases of voter fraud there were confirmed cases in 2020? out of 159 million voters. That's a scary thing to guess. Yeah. 5,000? <laughs> 17. 17. Oh, 17. <laughs> In 2020, there were 17 million voters. The Secretary of State's office reports three credible cases of voter fraud. So voter fraud is not a problem. So it's a phantom that those who try to restrict access use as an excuse. And it's not by far, we have much more of a problem with people not voting than with people voting twice, clearly. So that's the reason put forth, but it's not credible. It's not credible. Yeah. The wet signature part is interesting to me. I've had my real estate license for 10 years and we do everything over DocuSign. No one even, well, when you go and close on your home, you wet signature, but I mean, we're throwing around hundreds of thousands of dollars and it's no big deal. Yeah, we have the technology. I mean, and think about it. It's also a waste of money. I mean, all the paper, the ink, the volunteer resources, everything that takes to get those, then they have to be hand. Then there's a loss of data integrity when somebody is transferring a handwritten, often very sloppily, handwritten form into a computer you lose data integrity, which can then cause problems for that voter later on down the line when they try to vote and their address is wrong or their name is wrong or something like that. It just introduces a huge cost and a huge problem to do it yeah. that way. I even think about that, those accidental human errors that can come about because we're going with this antiquated system. Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't there also a problem? Like if I signed Nicole Abshire on my original application, but then on my ballot, I do in Abshire, or I guess, wait, now I'm starting to get into That's mail for vote voting. by mail. Like if, yes, <laughs> there's a technology for vote by mail signature matching. And so, yes, if you signed it differently or maybe whatever, you signed really fast and it didn't match, it would get flagged and then you might have to come in or, I mean, it just introduces all of these other obstacles for people that are kind of unnecessary. Yes. So does the league get involved with advocacy at the Texas legislature when bills are being put forward that make voting more difficult? Yes. The Texas, so the state leagues are kind of in charge of that advocacy piece. So the Texas State League does, they prepare testimony that we either written or in person that they present in the legislature specifically on voting, yeah, on voting regulations. And also there's a whole kind of issue policy papers. And so when anything comes up that is on our, something that we have a position on, we will prepare testimony. And I say we, that's the Texas League. But because Austin area, because we're right here in the capital city, 
we tend to, our members tend to get called up to present that testimony or drop off that testimony. And that's called the Capitol Core. And I've participated in that. I live about two miles from the Capitol. So they'll want testimony dropped off at 730 in the morning. So I'll run down there and drop it off. So they rely on the Austin Area League to do a lot of that, the testifying. This is a question that is just kind of bubbling up. So it seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of these bills that are put forward to suppress the vote are from the Republican Party. How do y'all stay on that nonpartisan line with one party sort of pushing for yeah. taking away the vote from folks? It's difficult when one party clearly seems to be against democracy. But I mean, and in fact, we've been accused in other states. There's some states where they're accusing the league of being partisan because of that exact reason, because the things that we've always stood for, regardless of what party was in power or who was doing what, the things that we've always stood for now tend to be the home of one party. However, we maintain that integrity by never participating in any partisan event, never endorsing candidates, never endorsing parties, none of that. Our issues have never changed. And you can look across time. The issues have always been the same. Mm-hmm. God, that's so important. Yeah, it sounds that sounds like really f- thorny, I guess. I mean, maybe not from your point of view or from the league's point of view, right? As you pointed out, have a very clear mission that has been the same since its inception. And yet I can see like outside forces sort of trying to drag you in. And right. Oh, you're left. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we also have rules for board members in certain positions that we cannot participate in any political organizations or give money to political campaigns over a certain amount. So we have rules kind of ju- overseeing our own conduct as board members. Yeah, we love an ethical organization. <laughs> Absolutely. We try to do that ourselves to be as informational I mean, we're human, so we're going to have our own views, but to give people a base knowledge and then you can draw your own conclusions. Right. And when we give, for instance, when we're doing, say, a voting presentation to high schoolers, we don't just give an example from one party. It's always like both sides. I mean, not of issues, but like, okay, well, here's an example from the Republican Party. Here's an example from the Democratic Party or Green Party, whatever. We kind of sprinkle it all in. So there's no inherent bias, I guess, in our presentations. I think this would be a good place to get into SB1, which took up a lot of the air in the past legislative sessions, (laughs) because we had a few of them. Can you tell us about that bill and how it impacted voting in Texas? Yes, I wrote down my notes because there are so many things. In the interest of time, I will talk about two or three biggest things that I think are really affecting this. So SB1, I feel like the biggest impacts, while there are wide ranging impacts, the biggest impact is on those who need to vote by mail, which was already difficult in Texas. You already needed a reason to vote by mail, which includes either you're over 65, you have a disability, you're out of the county during all of early voting and election day. If you were a felon, you've served your sentence and you're off paper. They have added the additional restriction that Election officials cannot offer or talk about vote by mail with voters, even though that's their role, right, to help people voting officials. They can no longer offer it or help anybody with vote by mail. They can't provide funds to an organization such as the League of Women Voters to print vote by mail ballots or, I mean, um, applications or help us get into communities to offer it. Third parties can do that. The League can do that. There's plenty of other organizations that are voting advocates and help people do vote by mail. But 
Now voting officials cannot offer it. The other thing, they've made it very complicated so that someone who's applying to vote by mail must now provide ID that matches their original voter registration that, like me, they may have been in Texas for 30 years and they don't remember. Did they provide their social security number? Did they provide their driver's license? Maybe they didn't have a driver's license yet. So when they apply for a ballot, the number they put, the ID number they put on that application must match the voter record. And then when they get the ballot in the mail, they have to provide numbers again, which again must match across those three documents. So we've had to create all kinds of education and we have slide presentations that show very clearly on these forms what numbers and where you need to put them. And we are telling everybody, provide both numbers. If you don't remember what you put on your voting application 30 years ago, just provide both numbers, always provide both numbers. And because when it first happened, of course, a lot of applications for vote by mail were being rejected. So we're hoping that this extra education and telling people to do things twice helps. Well, also, if you have looked at the vote by mail application, it is so tiny, you can barely read it. (laughs) So it's just a very poorly designed form. It's very hard to read. The league has actually come up with a newly designed form that is legal to use that's easier to read. How do people know if they voted by mail, if it's been counted or not? That was something that was actually a good thing that is now in place. You can track your vote by mail application and your ballot. And it's on the SOS Secretary of State website. There's a place that you say track my ballot or track my application and you can put in your information. You can watch it go through the system. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. I am also serve as an election judge in Travis County, and I have gotten many people who come to our polling place and say, especially when this first in the election in March, I applied for a ballot by mail. It never came. Can I still vote? You have to go in the system and do either provisional or you got to check or they got their ballot, but it got it was too late because it has to arrive in a certain window of time at the elections office. And so they were worried that it wouldn't get there in time. So they come to us and they surrender their ballot. And we have to do this whole all this extra paperwork to allow them to vote that day. So it just introduces all of these complications and anxiety for people voting by mail. Absolutely. I shared this in an earlier episode when we were speaking with Representative Vicki Good. When the pandemic happened, I think it was during the primary, it was some election. I requested to vote by mail because I was pregnant and it was the pandemic. And I was like, is this a disability? I don't know, but I really don't want to go in person and risk COVID exposure, especially when it was so new. And she said that she helped change the wording of the law so that you could actually like check the pregnant box instead of the disability box. Yes, it has to be within three weeks, either prior or after an election, which, yeah, is also kind of disingenuous because you don't know you're going to have a premature pregnancy. I mean, yes, but now there is that was an addition within three weeks of pregnancy of birth, three weeks of birth. And the whole time I was like, I hope I don't get in trouble, that my bowel doesn't get thrown out. It's very scared. Right. It's disconcerting. It's throwing anxiety and fear into the mix. Absolutely. That's one of the big things. Another big thing, among others, partisan poll watchers have been given more freedom in polling locations. So now they're allowed much closer access to voters, which feels like intimidation to me. Can you tell us first what poll watchers are for folks who might not know? People often get mixed up what a poll worker is and versus a poll watcher. So a poll worker is someone hired by the county to run the system, check people in, assist people with the voting machines, oversee it all, lock it all down and take the votes, take the ballots to Travis County. A poll watcher 
is always a partisan appointed by either a party or a candidate or an issue. Say there's a bond issue and there's a big pro and con groups. So like an issue. So poll watchers, now they have to take a little training and then they get a certificate and they can come into your polling place. And it used to be they could come in and they could stand way over there and just observe, which is fine, right? You want transparency in any polling location. But they were very innocuous before. They were kind of just there making sure there were no irregularities. Well, now poll watchers who are partisan in nature can come into polling places. They can observe every single little thing. They can stay there all the way through. It's a whole, it's about an hour, hour and a half long process at the end of the night to lock everything up, secure everything and get everything to the elections office. They can stay through all that. If they commit a violation and say someone outside, some voter says, oh my gosh, this person was looking over my shoulder or said something to me. If I didn't observe it as an election judge or a poll worker, we can't do anything about it. I have to physically have seen that happen. Again, introduces needless stress and anxiety in a polling location. There's also just a whole lot of other more paperwork that people have to do if they're trying to assist voters. If you're, for instance, someone who works in an assisted living facility or a nursing care facility and you have been used to bringing voters in a van to vote curbside or something like that, there's a lot of that that happens where people want to vote. They still want to participate, but they can't drive themselves. Now that driver has to provide more information and there's penalties, there's criminal penalties and all that kind of stuff. It just, it's added, it's infused a lot of anxiety and criminal activity threats around uh, helping voters, helping voters vote. Uh, Well, we appreciate that y'all are the logical voice in the mix, it sounds like, and trying to help folks who... And again, this affects everybody. Does it affect voter suppression tactics are typically created in order to disadvantage, disenfranchise one group of people. Often that is lower socioeconomic people who don't drive and can't get a driver's license, thus a voter ID or who are maybe English is not their first language. And so you can't provide assistance to them to understand the ballot or who are older or disabled. It affects there's a whole disability rights group that is up in arms about these things because the disabled are those who come who are being helped with curbside voting. And now there's just these extra kind of elements of fear and worry that are introduced into the system that disadvantage all those people. And they don't all vote the same. They're not a monolithic group. So anyway, I just feel like voter suppression is real. It's unfortunately happens over our long history in different ways. During the Reconstruction era, it was intimidation and violence and poll taxes and literacy tests. And now it's gerrymandering and strict ID laws and all these kind of fear of criminal penalties that have been added into the system. Well, and for anybody wondering, we are going to have an episode about the history of voting rights in Texas. So we'll be digging into all of the things that Pam just mentioned for sure. Mm -hmm. And why we are where we are, how this happened. I think it's always great to have history lessons. And speaking of education, can we talk a little bit about the kind of civics education that Texas students currently receive and if it's sufficient? Well, that's out of my wheelhouse. However, I will say that the league has worked with different organizations over the years, including the one that really stands out in my mind is Generation Citizen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but their mission is to get more and better civics education in high schools. As, and I'm sure you know this as parents, as Curricula have changed over the years, and there's been more emphasis on STEM, which is awesome, which is great, but it's kind of crowded out some of the softer kind of subjects, civics being one of them. And our first vote program 
tries to infuse a little bit of that civics education where we can get into schools. However, that's a half hour presentation. I mean, that's not a whole semester on how government works and what the role of a citizen should be in democracy and all that. So there are lots of organizations out there that are fighting to get better civics education in schools. And I thought I heard that high school seniors in Texas had to have the opportunity to register to vote in school. Is that right? Is there something like that? Okay. Yes. It's a provision within the Secretary of State that twice a year voter registration must be offered to Texas high school students. And the Texas Civil Rights Project actually a couple of years ago did a whole survey of every school district across Texas and found out that that was not happening. There was very little compliance with that. And over the years, it's gotten better. I don't know where it stands right now. I know that it has improved, but only because the Texas Civil Rights Project cried foul and really started holding their feet to the fire to do that. It reminds me, Claire, of when we've talked about unfunded mandates, right? Where it, this, I wonder if part of that issue is there's no accountability for it because there's no consequence, basically, except maybe kind of like a wag your finger, like you're supposed to be doing this. Yeah. I don't think it's a law. I think it's just a... Would be nice. to happen, but yeah. <laughs> a requirement or a policy or whatever, but it's not written into law. And so that you're right, there's no consequence. Mm-hmm. So have y'all found when you're educating students, do they seem eager to vote? Do they seem receptive to being part of the democratic process? Or do you see more disengagement and cynicism? I'm just kind of wondering where the temperature's at with the next generation. Yeah, I haven't gone into a classroom in the last couple of years because now I have a different role on the board. But when I was doing it regularly, it really depended on the school. And to be honest, it depended on how enthusiastic the government teacher was. Because we work with the first row teacher goes into government classrooms and they, we have connections to all of AISD and Austin area and other contiguous school districts. And if there was a really enthusiastic government teacher who was just really did hands-on stuff with their kids, I remember walking into a classroom and it was during a primary and the teacher had like pictures of all the candidates around the classroom and their platforms and the kids had been voting on it. And like the teacher really was a great teacher. And then we came in with our voting presentation and they were answering questions and they had questions. And but then I've gone into classrooms where it was like pulling teeth to get a kid to look up from his phone. And so it really just depends. It really depends. And I will say in the last couple of years that I have not been involved, the new chair of our first vote program is a teacher herself. And she has come up with all kinds of other ways to engage students, including doing stuff on morning announcements and in the closed circuit television programs of schools. And I feel like because she kind of knows what excites kids, students, young adults, that she might get more enthusiasm around And we also just completely revamped the presentation and make it more appealing to that group of people. Absolutely. I think whether you're young or old, you want to know, how does this impact me? Like, why should I care about this? And I imagine the more the teachers connected to their everyday lives, the more invested they are. And that's so valuable because you carry it with, it's a habit. I'm sure you you all know this from the league. Once you start voting, it becomes a normal part of your civic life and it's easier to stick with it. And one of the things that's in the presentation we talk about is make it an event, make it a fun, like go to vote with your friends and then go have brunch or do something fun around it and make it an annual event. So back to Texas and voter turnout in Texas, are people voting more historically or less? Like where are we as far as participation goes? 
I don't know turnout historically of adults, but because we've done all this work among young people, I thought that would be a real good thing to share. So in the voter group, 18 to 29 year olds, in 2016, nationally, 39% of 18 to 29 year olds, the turnout was 39%. In 2020, it was 50%. And in Texas, 18 to 29 year olds had a 28% turnout in 2016 and a 41% turnout in 2020. So what we're seeing, that's a greater increase. They started lower, there was a greater percentage increase for our young people in Texas. And so we do feel like the tide is shifting. There's been all these efforts and the league is not the only one by far. There's Jolt, there's Texas Votes, there's, I could name a bunch of organizations in Texas alone that are working to get out the vote and they're nonpartisan players often. They've been doing a lot of work. And so I do feel like it's trending upward. I feel like young people understand the stakes of the game more than they used to. They're concerned about climate. They're concerned about education. They're concerned about health care. And so I do feel like it's trending upward. That's encouraging. <laughs> yes, it is. When we talk to young people, especially, we don't want to say, oh, my gosh, this is so hard. Let me tell you, you know, oh, my God, you got to jump through this hoop and jump through that. That's not how we talk about it at all. What we talk about is what a great opportunity. And look at the trend, be part of this amazing thing. And you have the opportunity to kind of set the course for your future. And that's how we need to think about it is to get them engaged. What do you most enjoy about your volunteer work with the league? I mean, like I said, I don't go to high school much anymore unless they really need somebody because as I mentioned before, we're all volunteers and I have a full-time job. And so getting out to the high schools is difficult, but I love doing presentations for voters. We get all kinds of requests, especially this time of year, running up to the big election. And I'll have two or three a week and often it's on Zoom, so it's easy. I put together presentations, walking people through the history of voter suppression and what's happening with SB1 and I just love giving voters tools to help them be more informed voters and to help them tell other people. It's all about that. I mean, the league we've got on the board, we have 14 members or whatever. We can't obviously do it all, but then we educate people who then educate other people. And so I love being in that system. Yes, we appreciate it. I believe, at least from my own experience, that curiosity begets curiosity. So I'm sure when you're giving these presentations and people learn something new and unique, it probably gets them on that path of, and what else don't I know? And how else can I get involved? And absolutely. Yeah. And then hopefully, yeah, like you're saying, they share it with their friends and slowly we just bring one another in and get each other more involved. Well, and an indication is that when I first joined the league, but it was back in 2015, 2016, something like that, we had 150 members now we have over 600. So you can see it's definitely people have realized they really need to be a part of it and help with voting. Mm -hmm. I think we've covered most of our conversation. Nicole, is there anything outstanding that you wanted to ask? No, I can't think of anything. Everything meandered into the places I was hoping it would. <laughs> yeah. So no, this is awesome. Yeah. I guess I'll just wrap up by asking, what do you think we need to focus our attention on most right now to make sure our democracy is protected? I will say like big picture things. There are certainly things we can do locally, but what I feel like the biggest problems in our system include money in elections, because that's what motivates often all of the dark money where we don't know where the misinformation and the misleading ads and dark money is a real problem. Gerrymandering is a real problem because that disenfranchises voters on a very large scale. And then just 
voter education. I mean, as I said, there's so much misinformation out there being the kind of the boat in the storm that people know that they can come to and get good information and be able to make good decisions. The money in politics and the gerrymandering, that those are huge fights to have at federal and state levels, but helping individual voters understand their power and the issues is paramount. Absolutely. And part of our election series will touch on dark money in politics. So stay tuned, folks, if you want to know more about that issue. Well, to wrap up our show, we will do our attention mentions where we mention something that has our attention, just can't stop thinking about it. If it's a show or a book or a movie or an article or a podcast, I'm a podcastaholic. So Pam, does anything come to mind for you? Well, actually, several months ago, I started reading, and I know it's an old book now, but I had never read it, is the book about Lincoln's cabinet, Band of Rivals by, oh man, I forget her name now, Joyce Kearns. Anyway, so I read a little bit every night. And what I'm finding that just is shocking to me, not shocking, but just eye-opening to me is that it's all about the run-up to the Civil War and many decades ahead. She's kind of taking through the history of Lincoln and then the four other people who were his rivals in the 1860 election. And I'm reading about the 1850s right now, and it eerily feels the same. I mean, not that, obviously, I mean, I'm not saying that civil war is imminent, but I'm just saying the divisions that are in our country are eerily reminiscent of what happened in the 1850s. And I'm just hoping that our leaders have learned their lessons and know their history and take a different path. So great. And I looked that up while you were talking. And it's Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Yes, that's yes. correct. Excellent. Do you know yours, Claire? Because I'm going to look it up too. really quick. So you go ahead. Okay. Let's make sure yeah. I say it correctly. <laughs> this will give you a second. Yeah, I had to look mine up just a second ago, too, which was when you were talking about voter fraud. It reminded me about an excellent podcast that I listened to that traced an accusation of voter fraud and just everything that unraveled in this local town. Oh, and now I can't remember. I want to say it was Mississippi, but that's irrelevant. Really, the name of the podcast is what we need here. And it was the Improvement Association is the name of the podcast. And it's part of Serial. Oh, I love that. Hugely, yeah, yeah, popular initial podcast. And then they've had several seasons. And I want to say this was maybe the third or the fourth season. But the Improvement Association as part of the Serial podcast was fascinating. Excellent. I will listen to it. And really gets into the implications of when the accusations of voter fraud are false, but the ripple effects of what that did in this community. Really interesting. I like these. Okay, well, I'll try to stay on theme a little bit. (laughs) I saw a Netflix show not that long ago. I think this show was maybe initially on Showtime or some other service provider, but it was called The Comey Rule. The Comey Rule. I thought it was The Comey Report. The Comey Rule, which was about the time when Jim Comey was investigating Hillary Clinton because of her email situation. And I think Jeff Daniels played Jim Comey. But it was really interesting because it was from his perspective and that particular time in history. And it made me think when you were talking, Pam, about nonpartisanship, he saw himself so separate from Republicans or Democrats that he didn't even vote, at least in the show, he didn't. Like, he's like, that's not my place. My place is to be in this different institution and to be separate from this political process. And yet, I mean, he was, they drug him into it. And, you know, it was just fascinating. I read about him, but it was a cool experience seeing that story. And I'm not sure how accurate it was, but dramatically, it was a good show. So check it out. It's on Netflix. I will. 
Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Pam. We really appreciate you taking your time to share a little bit more with us about voting and the struggles we have here in Texas. But you can still vote nonetheless. And if you need help, turn to the League of Women Voters. If you need help discovering who is a good candidate for you, go to vote411.org and read up on the amazing information that they provide. Thank you so much for having me. And don't forget the deadline for registering to vote in this year's election is October 11th. So get it done before then. That's my birthday, everybody. So that will help you remember. (laughs) Yes. And we'll put stuff on social media. Don't forget. So yeah, thanks so much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.